Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes, Jonah Goldberg, and David French. This podcast is brought to you by The Dispatch. Visit thedispatch.com to see our full slate of newsletters and podcasts, and make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Today, we'll talk about the latest proposals on police reform, a deadly border skirmish between two nuclear powers, and the Supreme Court's decision on sexual orientation and gender identity, what it means for the conservative legal movement moving forward. And we'll end with some pet peeves on writing and grammar, which you at home can use to make your own bingo card when reading the guy's newsletters in the future. Oh, and yes, the brisket is out of the oven. Nate slept through this podcast, but he tells me that he may make an appearance for our next Dispatch Live. So go to our website to find out how to become a member. Let's dive right in. This week, we've seen uh, both Democrats, Republicans, and President Trump propose their own police reforms. I want to walk through some of those, uh, very similar in some respects, but very different messaging on the other hand. So today, we have the Justice Act, Just and Unifying Solutions to Invigorate Communities Everywhere Act of 2020, proposed by Senator Tim Scott and the Senate Republicans. This involves uh, an enhanced use of force database, restrictions on chokeholds, new commissions to study law enforcement and race, according to uh, the draft that the Associated Press has. Uh, On the House side, Democrats proposed some similar parts, also uh, banning chokeholds, no-knock warrants, but there's also included abolishing qualified immunity, a doctrine that David and I have talked about quite a bit that we've also put in the morning newsletter frequently. And then yesterday we had President Trump announce his executive order. A lot focused on best practices and these discretionary federal grants that the administration can use to incentivize good behavior. Uh, Information sharing to track officers who have repeated complaints against them and incentives for police departments, these financial grant incentives to deploy uh, non-police experts on mental health, homelessness, addiction, things like that. Um, At the same time, we have some polling that says that, I mean, just an incredibly high number of people, 59%, say police departments across the country either need a complete overhaul or major reforms. Only 27% say police need minor overhaul. So still changes. And 5% uh, think they don't need reforms at all, which was surprising. At the same time, of course, the defund the police slogan, movement, et cetera, wildly unpopular. So two to one margin, more voters oppose the movement than support it. And uh, 43% strongly oppose among those numbers. Jonah, coming to you first on police reforms, where does this leave us? The likelihood of what police reforms will look like, let's say, a month from now, and uh, where public opinion may go from here. Yeah, I think when we look back on this moment, we're going to realize how crazy pants it got. Um, I think that the one of the reasons why, I, I, I think it was sort of a perfect storm. The pandemic lockdown built up an enormous amount of frustration. You then had um, 
a perfectly legitimate thing to get very angry about, which was the brutal killing of George Floyd, which made a lot of, which was legitimately horrifying on the merits. But then you also had this third factor, which I don't think a lot of people have focused on. I keep hearing these phrases on NPR, on TV, um, where they people are trying to describe the times they're in, and they say, at a time when America is deeply divided on race and um, and on policing, right? And but really on race, and it's actually not a time when we're we're deeply divided on race. No one was really coming to the defense of the police in the George Floyd case. And so I think one of the things that has happened is that you've got an enormous number of people who want to have an argument with somebody. So they start staking out a position that you have to, that you basically are begging someone to argue with you about, like abolishing the police, which is mind-bogglingly dumb. And um, and so I, I think that there's a, there's a weird... Um, moral panic, elite moral panic that's been going on in all of this, where people are terrified to just ha- make reasonable points about things. I've now seen several leading Democratic politicians say, without qualification, that we know that the police began as fugitive slave patrols in the United States. That is flatly not true. It is true of some Southern states, right, which were rural and and didn't have modern police forces or the need for big police forces. But the idea, the oldest major police department in America is the Boston Police Department, which started in like 1820. I don't think they started it for slave patrols. Um, the the English have had versions of police of one kind or another since the 1300s. I don't think it's about slave patrols. And so there is this weird desire to turn what is an absolutely legitimate issue into a, almost a hysterical issue. And I, I, I think... The added part of, part of the problem is there's just not much for the federal government to do here. So I thought Donald Trump's executive order was absolutely reasonable and fine, more or less, but he got beat up by a bunch of people because there wasn't enough expiation of American sin on race and all of this kind of thing. And I think at the end of the day, when this is all said and done, we'll get some good reforms, not nearly anything close to abolishing the police. And people are going to look back on this and say, we kind of lost our minds for a while. That's how I see it. Steve, Joe Biden, uh, in his initial policy rollout, had something pretty similar to, you know, Trump's executive order, the GOP plan and the Dem plan, which all actually have quite a bit in common. He had 300 million to increase community policing. Uh, Are they they're going to need to make this a wedge issue in my mind heading into the fall and summer? How do you do that on the Democratic side? I mean, I think everything is going to be a wedge issue. (laughs) Or, or everything, they will attempt to make everything a wedge issue on both sides going into the fall and summer. Yeah, look, I, th- I think there's a fair amount of overlap on some of the basic reforms, which doesn't mean that that these are easy necessarily or that they will have the kind of impact that people believe that they will have. If there were easy reforms to have been made and there were large consensus positions about what those reforms looked like, I think we would have seen some of them earlier. Um, Joe Biden has had his position. I mean, he's he's had similar positions over his long career on uh, police and increasing funding for police. He rolled out his campaign 
plans something like a year ago. So some of this is, isn't necessarily new for, for Joe Biden. I, th- I think the reforms generally get at two of the things that when I talk to law enforcement officers, they emphasize as solutions to the problem. One is increased and better and standardized, more standardized training. Their argument is you get into a situation that's a a difficult situation and you need to be able to react in the way that you've practiced to react dozens or hundreds of times before. It has to just be sort of a natural reaction to the extent that that's possible in in the kinds of heated situations that are uh, prominent in our discussion today. Um, And the other is identifying and removing bad officers. You have in this database, um, I think, a way to expedite the identification of bad officers. The second step on that, I think, will be making it easier to get rid of them. Um, You know, some of the police officers I've spoken to have said, we all know who the bad cops are. We, We get it. And when there's an incident like this, the least surprised people are the cops who have worked alongside him or her. Um, so being able to get rid of the bad officers, the officers who have had 17, uh, previous run-ins or, um, significant complaints, that's a big step too. So, so I think we'll see sort of incremental reform, uh, but whatever agreement, whatever consensus has emerged in the short term, I think is likely to, to disappear as we head toward November. Quick follow-up, Steve, at... In your view, because you and I have talked about this, Val Demings, woman of color, former police chief herself, is her stock rising or falling in your mind for Biden beat stakes? Yeah, I think it's rising. I mean, I I, I guess before um, the kind of protests that we've seen and the focus on this set of issues, I thought that she was, you know, largely um, a second or third tier candidate. She was mentioned often um, in discussions of of Biden's uh, potential running mate. But I think this has elevated her pretty significantly. And in conversations that I've had with with members of Congress, including Republicans, um, they speak highly of her. Uh, She is she's well regarded, I think, on both sides of the aisle. Um, I may have mentioned this before, but she's she's uh, on Twitter at least taken a somewhat more um, resistancey um, set of views than her Republican colleagues at least had been accustomed to seeing from her. Um, but uh, th- they think she's uh, she's she's uh, a smart person would be a, a serious candidate if if Joe Biden picked her. David, looking at that polling again, where you have a very high number of people who think that police need major, major reforms, and at the same time, of also incredibly significant number of people who oppose the defund the police moment, who's the, you know, median voter right now on these issues? What do they look like? Uh, that's a great question. I, I would say the median voter is somebody who... Uh, has a general background regard for the police, but is really worried about continuing to see these incidents happening time and time and time again. And is just sort of saying, fix it. They're not saying end the police. They're not saying defund the the police. They're saying fix the police. And, you know, it's a really interesting question when you're talking about at the federal level, how can this be a wedge issue at the federal level? 
When the fact of the matter is that the federal government doesn't run any one of the police forces that have been in the crosshairs of late. Uh, it has actually pretty limited ability to influence a lot of these police forces. They are governed not just by local law and state law. They're governed by collective bargaining agreements. And one thing that I wholeheartedly agree with Steve about is that one thing the federal government can do because it is resourced so much better than any given state or um, or local government is they can train. They can provide access to superior training. And this is something I've written about in my newsletter is that when I see a lot of these police incidents, I see, I often I see a lack of discipline just jumping all over the screen. It's just a complete lack of discipline. And lack of discipline is a matter not just of, of authority. In other words, how much, do, how, you know, what kind of actual leadership and control exists over individual police, but it's also a matter of training. Uh, like Steve said, that when th- when bad things happen, what kicks into your mind automatically? And this combination of training and discipline can go a long way towards ending not just these shootings or killings, which gain all of the headlines, but you know we have seen a relentless drumbeat of videos of police officers engaging in impulsive violent acts, um, breaking ranks from other officers to grab a protester who's just shouting at them and arrest them or the random, you know, the, the attack on the Australian news crew was a police officer. If you watch the video, he's got this shield and he walks past the cameraman and then he just impulsively hits the cameraman with the shield for no reason at all. And so I do think there's some federal role in, in, um, training that can help with these discipline issues, but a lot of the rest of it and aside from qualified immunity, which for now is a non-starter, both at the Supreme Court and in Congress, because the Republicans have said no, a lot of these other uh, things are going to be local initiatives. Um, civil asset forfeiture. Um, civil asset forfeiture is not primarily federal. There is federal civil asset for- forfeiture, but it's uh, there is, and the policing for profit. Those things are much more state level problems. When you're talking about reforming cash bail, much more of a state level problem. If you're talking about no knock raids, there is a role there for the federal government. But again, you can uh, ban no knock raids without the federal government. So a lot of these things, we have this national turmoil around issues that are ultimately legally local. And I think that sort of creates a, it creates an interesting political issue because people don't really realize that, you know, they're going to be looking at in the presidential election and say, can you fix this? And, you know, candidates will, Biden and Trump will make grand grand pronouncements. But the bottom line is that this is going to be something that's done department by department by department. And by the way, on the defund the police thing, I've just started to make a decision. I've just got to start start ignoring some of this stuff that seems to get most of its traction on Twitter and in, you know, in and in the middle of sit-ins and nowhere else. And I'm with you on that. But, like, so yesterday on MSNBC, Eddie Gloud Jr., uh, you know, this guy from Princeton, smart guy, nice guy, I've met him, was on Meet the Press with him. Uh, Anchor said, you know, what about increased training? Basically what you're talking about. And Gloud reigned extreme contempt on the very idea that training would have 
that training could work at all. That training has any benefit to it. One of the people I saw talking about slave patrol stuff was was the number three Democrat in the House was was, was Jim Clyburn. The the you know, and then so last night on on special report, they ran a package of some of the things that Joe Biden said in you know uh, five years ago about policing, about how community policing is good, that p- policing reduces crime. We know this. He's absolutely right. All of the empirical literature says that. The more police you have in visible places reduces crime. Just so happens that reduce, reducing crime it benefits African-American communities as much as any community in this country. And I honestly think that there is a real opening. Trump can't do it for all sorts of reasons, even though I think his basic position is closer to right. Um, but Biden could just come out and say, come on, let's be serious here and give, it's not a sister soldier thing, because he doesn't want to attack anybody on the left, particularly not a lot of these prominent people, but my my hunch is, is he could thread the needle and make a case for policing um, that my hunch, most older African-American voters would completely support, and those are the ones who got him his nomination, those are the ones who vote in the you know for Democrats reliably, unlike younger African Americans, and I and I think he would he, he would he he's in real danger if he lets himself get pulled crazily to the left, where the Twitter world and the MSNBC world take it as a given that the the moderate position now is to take a wrecking ball to every police station in the country. Oh, and, I. I, I. Um, I agree. I agree if he allows himself to be pulled that way, that it would be a huge mess for him. I'm skeptical that he'll allow himself to be pulled that way because it's been sort of contrary to the ethos of much of his campaign, which is to sort of campaign as if Twitter never was invented. Um, Yeah. And he has very clearly. Yeah, exactly. He has very clearly said he is not in favor of defunding the police and that he has an alternative platform that, as we've said, overlaps a great deal with elements of the Republican reform platform. But yeah, I agree with you, Jonah. If he allows himself to be sort of swayed by Twitter and some of these MSNBC voices like his Democratic competitors were during much of the primary, he's going to have he's going to create real problems for himself. Um, Steve, on the other side, on the conservative movement side, you know, 10 years ago, gosh, has it, it really has been 10 years. Um, the rise of the Tea Party movement, the 10th Amendment crowd, it was all about federalism. And in 2020, we see coronavirus being largely uh, highlighting governors, local government, making decisions that people see the decision-making process a lot more than I think we've seen uh, in years past. And now police reform, to David's point, which will largely happen at the local level. Uh, Are we... 10 years too late for a 10th Amendment moment within the conservative movement. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't I don't see it quite as clearly and consistently as you do, I guess. I, I think to the extent that you're hearing 10th Amendment arguments today from um, current Republicans in power, it's largely on an issue by issue basis and whatever allows them to dunk on liberals. Um, <laughs> oh, no, and, I agree. I think the 10th Amendment moment past. I don't think yeah. there are a lot of 10th Amendment conservative movement folks, but I guess what's strange to me is that 10 years ago, that was 
a yeah. premier rallying cry. And here's the moment that it would be so effective. And yet I'm not hearing. I, I don't yeah. think I've heard the Tenth Amendment said in three months. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I misunderstood. No. I, look. I mean, I think you you can file that along with a lot of other principled uh, small government arguments that we're not <laughs> hearing these days very often. No. I mean, I think that as as with everything, this is largely um, these arguments and the, and the way to make these arguments are largely done on an ad hoc basis, depending on what ever benefits the president or whatever people perceive benefits the president at any given moment. So you'll hear 10th Amendment arguments, I think, selectively, you know, you heard them in the context of the debate over what to do with the national uh, PPE stockpile. Um, It's a national, I mean, it was a federal PPE stockpile, and you still had arguments about um, federalism then. You had the president saying, you know, we believe in the states. We want to empower the governors. The governors should should go out and do this on their own. And then Larry Hogan went out and did it on his own. And the president reigned holy hell down on Larry Hogan for going out and doing it on his own. There's not a principled, consistent federalist position that's being made very often these days. I suspect, I mean, and, and in this, you're, you have, uh, I think, a White House that's doing, to a certain extent, a little bit of both with a, a, a federal registry of bad cops and, um, you know, pushing other things back toward the states. I think we'll continue to see this kind of ad hoc hodgepodge approach to these issues based largely on their political appeal and much less on what a principled position, small government position would look like. Sorry for being so cynical. I'll just have you know that (laughs) under the 10th Amendment, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone of of Seattle <laughs> is allowed to police itself any way it sees fit, including uh, use of what? the guillotine. <laughs> it's there is something very French Revolution about what was going on there. I kind of didn't see any more updates over the weekend. I'll admit I had a busy weekend, I suppose. But uh, is that still a thing? It's still a thing. They've improved the wall, the the border wall, which I love. Um, they're constantly updating it with better technology, which is important when you're building. A border wall for good reasons, um, and <laughs> is it a wall um, or a fence? I mean, come on, that that matters. It's journey. It's getting kind of. It's getting wall-ish with plants. And who's and paying stuff. for it? Mexico, which is amazing, <laughs> um, and uh, and um, over the weekend, it looked like, or on Monday, it looked like they were heading into their. Uh, Judean People's Front versus the People's Front of Judea phase with um, uh, different factions lining up against each other. I did like this video of it on the interwebs of a reparations moment where a white guy told, I shouldn't say white guy, didn't look like he was black. He could have been some other thing in between or something, but uh, he told all of the white people in Chaz that they needed to give $10 to a black person in Chaz. And um, <laughs> I don't know how that played out, but it was, um, it's going great there. It's going really great. They really have a leg up on the founders. Steve, can we assign Jonah as like a reporter on the ground? I was I just going to say that. I would love I'm to see it. that. I'm for it. You know, yeah. Jonah, Jonah did one of the better, more memorable reported pieces uh, of, of the past couple decades when he went up to Anwar and did like on the ground reporting there. I am 100 percent for sending him to jazz and dressing him up. In, oh, in yeah. Kind of, you know, skinny hip, jeans, hipster. Can we garb. put him in black skinny jeans. Yes, that'd be perfect. 
Well, he needs. He's a got the hair sleeve. for it already. He definitely has the hair for. it. I know, but I shaved my. I trimmed my beard. That's the problem. I and mean, the beard it worked. Um, but we'll talk about it. You know, I mean, maybe in it, maybe when it's thermidor phase, I'll go out there. Um, Perfect. Well, unless you get a tattoo Perfect. sleeve, you're going to be immediately identified and marched out of there, as some other interlopers <laughs> have been identified. So, be thinking about I the do, design. I do look like a narc. I mean, I, I just do. So there's that. All right. Moving topics. Uh, here's a sentence you just don't hear every day, Steve. I mean, we have two nuclear powers who are believed to have fatalities on both sides after a border skirmish. Uh, it was, according to reporting that I'm seeing today, hand-to-hand combat because they do not carry guns in this zone using stones and wooden clubs and, uh, Troops on each side were killed, but for instance, in this you know brutal uh, way, only three Indian soldiers, I understand, were killed on the battlefield. The rest died of exposure because the temperatures there are so extreme. Uh, and this comes down to the de facto border, the line of actual control, the LAC that runs along the western sector of this valley between India and China. Can you give us an update? What do we know? Where is this headed? Should I be concerned that, you know, while we're dealing with our American news cycle, uh, which is always very American focused, that we have two nuclear powers who just had fatalities? Yes, um, we should always be concerned um, when you have these kinds of tensions among um, two nuclear powers. I think we should be uh Additionally concerned because this comes at a moment of rising nationalism, both in India and in China. We should also be concerned because China has made clear that it seeks to expand uh, its territorial ambitions and hasn't been very subtle about it. Um, And I think we should be concerned because the United States, which which, uh, often can play um, a moderating role in these kinds of conflicts in the past is really not in a position to play one here. Um, clearly, our our ally is India. President Trump has been uh, very friendly with um, Modi in India and obviously has, um, I would say, he's been on again, off again with uh, Xi in China, where he, on the one hand, it looks like we're confronting China in a pretty frontal way in some uh, areas of trade and and other areas. But then, of course, you have the president saying many, many nice things about uh, Xi in his comments to the American media, early defenses of the Chinese on coronavirus and what have you. Look, this is an old dispute. This is not new. Um, it has uh, escalated in recent weeks for, for some reasons that I think are are clear and local um, and other reasons that have much more to do with positioning, sort of geopolitical, geostrategic positioning, um, both in the region, but also globally. Um, China is making its presence known on the global stage. They're, they're you know, from, from uh, the aggressive moves that China's made in Western Europe and in Africa to uh, expanding its reach and intensifying uh, its efforts in the region, uh, in Asia. 
we know what China is seeking to do, and this appears to be a part and parcel of, of those efforts. I think that the question will be what the United States does to a certain extent. I mean, the, the, the real question is what do the two parties do themselves? And you've already seen at least uh, early indications that there's a, an attempt to de-escalate the rhetoric after lots of bellicose rhetoric from both sides. Um, the Chinese are now uh, foreign ministry spokesman saying, "Look, we, you know, this shouldn't this shouldn't go anywhere. We're committed to peace. We want to have these conversations. Um, we'll see if the United States can play a constructive role, but there are lots of reasons to be skeptical about that." David, you have a bullying theory. <laughs> yeah, I have a bullying theory. So, um, I mean, look, we we know and that China and India have fought over this ground before. China rather handily defeated India decades ago when they fought. India has always been a weaker power compared to China. It has never, India has never really been in the American orbit, so to speak. It has consistently sought its arms uh, from other sources. It has been consistently weaker as a military power than China. Well, now you have a rising India and you have a rising India that is moving closer to the United States. And uh, there, India is in, in the middle of a major military modernization. It's considering a huge purchase of military technology that may include American technology to construct in India, American-designed fighter jets, which could really begin to change the balance of power here. And so I think that there could be, well, um, some bullying designed to alter Indian policy while China believes it still has a very decisive military upper hand. And so I, I do think that, you know, you have to look at this if you're if you're seeking to be at the very least, you know, establish regional dominance and at the very most um, position yourself as a superpower, a rising superpower potentially to eclipse the United States of America. One of the things you have to one of the the Chinese views may well be that it has to handle its business in its backyard with another rising rival. And this is a way to do that. It is a way to exercise a bit of brinksmanship to extract concessions from India or to alter Indian behavior as a condition for backing down. It remains to be seen. But, you know, one of the things that we often forget when we look at great power struggles is we often look at them entirely through the sort of the prism of economics and politics we also need to keep in the back of our minds and maybe sometimes front of mind uh, military balance of power. Quite frankly, who has the stronger military? What is the concern about an emerging and strengthening military on your border? And how much does that play a role in the actions China is engaging in now? So that's something that is just as soon as I saw this against the background of, of India's potential new arms purchases and its a military modernization, I began to think hard about whether this was bullying designed for concessions. Now, it could reach the exact opposite result. It could spur India to much greater efforts to modernize so that it can't be bullied. Um, but it remains to be seen. Uh, I'm going to do exactly what David just said not to do, Jonah. Bringing this back to politics, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Joe Biden always touts his foreign policy credentials, yet it seems like there's no room in the political news cycle here in the United States uh, to focus on this. Is this a space, whether today or 
during the course of this campaign that foreign policy will be a major factor in your mind? Um, I don't, at some point, foreign policy always comes back as an important thing. I don't think this will be it precisely because we don't have much skin in this particular game that's going on. Um, of course, few things get people's attention more than even a limited exchange of nuclear weapons between two nuclear <laughs> superpowers. So there, the, that, you know, that could distract us a little bit. Um, but I think that, you know, it is. it seems to me entirely possible that China could actually get our attention, not by what it does with India, but what it, what it does with say Taiwan or even Hong Kong. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just had on my podcast, uh, Oriana Ma Mastro on, and she's a defense department, uh, China anal security analyst and a professor at Georgetown. And she is, as they say in Boston, wicked smart. And, um, I got so many people saying, oh my gosh, so we're going to war with China <laughs> after the podcast. And, um, and she responded, I don't understand why everyone thinks this is such a dreary argument i was taking the optimistic position um and so I, I i do think there's a real chance that china in 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 part because it might have a theory about who it wants to be president i don't i'm not making i'm not making a russia meddling kind of argument but like um you could see them do, going for some serious mischief during the presidential campaign as a way of sort of testing stress testing both sides to see what they get out of them. Um, but it is who amazing think, that we, who do you I'm think sorry? the argument, it, assuming for a second, let's assume that China does make a move, uh, Taiwan or Hong Kong. Cause I agree. I think either one of those would capture quite a bit of attention over here in a way that for whatever reason, India and China, uh, doesn't cause it doesn't feed this preexisting narrative. I think, uh, that exists over here already. Uh, who does it help? Uh, meaning does Joe Biden have the better foreign policy argument with, uh, the American people, or does Donald Trump, it, with China specifically, a Chinese aggression specifically? I tend to, I'm really open to correction on this one. Um, in my gut, though, I actually think it helps Biden, even though I think Biden has been wrong on most major foreign policy questions for the last 30 years. Um, but the the general talk about working with allies, about supporting allies, um, about working with international institutions, all that kind of stuff as part of a broader return to normalcy pitch, I think helps Biden. Um, and I think part of the problem that Trump has is he very much likes to talk tough on China, but not on Xi, as if that there's a major distinction between the two. And I think he gets himself into more trouble uh, than he help than than his than his benefits when he tries to play those games, particularly if we're in a moment where, um, you know, if China actually does try to take Taiwan, which I think is a matter of when, not if. Yeah, let me let me Anyone jump disagree? in. Let me jump in yeah. real quick. Yeah, I I, th I think we are right to be concerned about the role that some foreign policy, national security externality could play in the election. Um, I would say China obviously is an, is, is an obvious 
candidate for mischief, but there are many others. Um, you, you know, you're seeing credible reports about the rise again of ISIS um, in Iraq and Syria. You're seeing more mischief making by Al Qaeda and ISIS in Afghanistan, further deterioration of an already dicey um, situation on the ground in Afghanistan as the U.S. withdraws. You're seeing more mischief making from North Korea, um, both things that are very obviously designed to to look provocative um, and to generate a response from South Korea and the West, but also steps and these are just things that we're talking about that we know of steps that uh, very clearly increase the threat against the United States and our allies in the region. And then, of course, you have Iran. And well, I don't want to go you know, too far down the road of, of speculating what uh, President Trump might or might not do. I think it's, it's not terribly responsible to do that. I will just say we know from his own comments in the past that he believes he looks strongest when he's in that kind of um, uh, one-on-one back and forth with our uh, enemies and adversaries. And he's accused President Obama of using foreign policy in the past for the purposes of uh, winning elections. So I think there are reasons to count on some kind of additional external conflagration and reasons to be concerned about the way that that might, you know, affect our day-to-day lives and also affect uh, the election itself. I don't, I don't think- David, you have a furrowed brow. Yeah, I don't think chaos oversee, any degree of additional chaos helps Trump at all. You know, maybe, uh, you know, if Trump is the challenger and there's chaos and he says, I'm going to come in and I'm strong and I'm, and people aren't going to want to challenge me and I'm going to set things right. But I feel very similar uh, feeling about chaos overseas as I feel about chaos at home. It's tough to run as the law and order guy when the chaos broke out well into your watch. We're, we're talking about, you know, well into the fourth year of your presidency. Um, and I feel like the same with there's an awful lot of, of sense that Trump was kind of trying to have it both ways. Well, <laughs> not kind of, he was, he was having it both ways and saying, I'm strong and nobody's going to cross me. And also I'm going to get us out of everywhere. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get us out of all of the military entanglements and diminish our military presence overseas. I'm going to bring the troops home, but I'm also strong and nobody will want to tangle with me. And those are just fundamentally sort of incompatible, um, assertions and they have inherent within them intention. And we're seeing some of that with uh, rise of Al Qaeda in Afghanistan. And uh, I mean, Al Qaeda meddling in, in Taliban process, uh, Taliban, um, I'm sorry, ISIS presence in Afghanistan, ISIS rising again in Iraq and Syria. Um, and these that chaos, I cannot imagine actually helping him. As in the same way, it's hard for me to imagine chaos in the streets helping him. This is not what Make America Great Again was supposed to look like. And um, I think that foreign powers who are tired of dealing with Trump might try to play a little bit of dangerous game here. And uh, it, it remains, you know, it remains to be seen what they'll do or how Trump will respond. But I think that the bottom line is, as a political matter, I don't see chaos helping him at all. So I, I agree with that with a couple of important caveats. I I think as a general matter, that's correct. 
I think the way in which uh, you could imagine chaos helping the president is if the United States or, or, or voters felt that we were under attack somehow and that, you know, President Trump was standing up to an attack and, um, you know, taking on people who want to do us harm. You can imagine that that might help, even, uh, even though I think that's, that itself is a, is a question. And the second point I would make is, obviously, it, it, it matters um, what, what happens, you know, what these events actually are that we're, that we're talking about. Um, but it also matters what President Trump thinks. So you may be entirely right that it wouldn't help Donald Trump if there's, you know, some big foreign policy national security crisis. Um, but it matters a lot if Donald Trump thinks it will help Donald Trump True. if there's such uh, a crisis or if there's an opportunity to look strong or to be strong in a way that would allow him to campaign. And um, look, we saw Barack Obama campaign in 2012 uh, extensively on killing Osama bin Laden. And mm -hmm. the argument basically was we took out Osama bin Laden in May of 2011 and Al-Qaeda is soon to, to die afterwards. And that's the way we're running for re-election. We're making you safe. Donald Trump um, saw a, you know, there was a lot of concern, I think, and there was speculation that uh, events could spiral out of control after the killing of Qasem Soleimani. And it didn't happen. And I think you, you talk to Trump supporters, talk to Trump administration officials, and they will point to the killing of Qasem Soleimani as a highlight for the president. I think it was a, a good moment for the president. So you can see where a president who who takes that approach and who has that view of what makes him strong and what makes him powerful uh, would be inclined to find those areas where he can exercise that kind of uh, that kind of power. And now let's take a quick break and talk about our sponsor this week, ExpressVPN. Being stuck at home these days, you probably don't think much about internet privacy on your own home network. Fire up incognito mode on your browser and no one can see what you're doing, right? Wrong. Even in incognito mode, your online activity can still be traced. Even if you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. But that's why there's ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN makes sure your internet service provider can't see what sites you visit. Instead, your internet connection is rerouted through ExpressVPN's secure servers. Each ExpressVPN server has an IP address that's shared among thousands of users. That means everything you do is anonymized and can't be traced back to you. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data with best-in-class encryption, so your information is always protected. Use the internet with confidence from your computer, tablet, or smartphone. ExpressVPN has you covered on every device. Simply tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the fastest and most trusted VPN on the market. It's rated number one by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless more. If you visit my special link right now at expressvpn.com slash freedom, you get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show and protect yourself with ExpressVPN. Expressvpn.com slash freedom. Well, let's shift topics. Jonah, big day at the Supreme Court. I've already talked to David about it. Plenty on advisory opinions. Plug, plug, plug. <laughs> uh, uh, the Supreme Court held that Title VII, which prohibits sex discrimination in uh, a lot of private sector areas, 
applies to sexual orientation and gender identity. This was met with feelings, let's say, in the conservative movement. Republican Senator Josh Hawley in Missouri, a former Chief Justice Roberts clerk himself, said that the decision, quote, represents the end of the conservative legal movement. The decision was 6-3 with uh, Roberts and Neil Gorsuch, the Trump appointee to the Supreme Court, writing, uh, sorry, joining with the four liberals. Gorsuch was writing the opinion. Uh, Alito wrote a dissent. Kavanaugh wrote a dissent. So you basically have this intra-conservative legal movement fight. Is it the end of the conservative legal movement, Jonah? <laughs> no. Uh, but it's not good, Bob. Uh, it's, uh, uh, I, I am, uh, you know, my, I've been, and I have not, the, I'm not the lawyer person that you guys are, which but means But that's I why can, I'm asking you, actually. Yeah, I, I know, think it's, it, I think this is an important like non-lawyer people vote on judges. Uh, this was the butt judges argument for a lot of folks in 2016. Yeah. So my, my I mean, the politics part of it aside for two seconds, um, my own view is Gorsuch came to this position honestly, but incorrectly. Um, I think that, uh, he is a sincere textualist and, uh, and he was, sincerely applying it as he sees it to come to this conclusion. I think it's a wrong or bad or incorrect conclusion. Um, and I think my general problem with it is that the, you know, I don't believe in a living constitution. I also don't believe, I mean, I, I, I it's weird. I do believe in a living language. What we associate, what we, the meaning that we imbue in words changes over time. I'm a big fan of like looking up the etymology of words and see how they've changed and all the rest. But that literally, can't, literally <laughs> uh, that can't be a backdoor to breathing new meaning into the words of the Constitution. And um, it feels to me that that's what Gorsuch does when he says that um, discrimination against transgender people is uh, se- was is sex discrimination? You can make that argument that that that's what it is today. It is not what it meant when they wrote the when they wrote the Civil Rights Act. It is not what it's not how left wing activists interpreted the Civil Rights Act in the 1990s. You know, when as David has pointed out, when they were lobbying the uh, got, you know Congress to to amend the Civil Rights Act to include these people because they didn't think sex they didn't think they were included at the time so it's it it it's a back it feels like a backdoor way of doing a living constitution argument and i think it's a shame i don't put a lot of credence in when people like holly say it's the end of the conservative legal movement because there are a lot of people out there who want an end to the conservative legal movement who are very quick to shout this is the end of the conservative <laughs> legal movement and um, if i didn't think that holly was wanted results oriented judges and and jurisprudence i would i would put a lot more credence in his uh uh death certificate for the conservative legal movement but to me this is sort of like adrian vermule saying ah this shows the end of the conservative legal movement well this is a guy who really 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 wants to put a stake through the heart of the conservative legal movement so of course you would say that i do think it is a very bad thing for trump because particularly because if it was Gor- because it was Gorsuch, 
and butt Gorsuch had become such a meme. And now it takes on, now it, it really, he has breathed new life and new meaning into the text of butt Gorsuch um, in a way that is somewhat ironic. It's a living meme. Um, and uh, um, it just, it makes Trump running on judges even marginally more complicated. And that was one of the few really clean arguments that he had. And he doesn't need that to get complicated, too. So can I jump in here briefly? Sure. I was shocked you weren't just jumping up and down. <laughs> well, first, look, uh, everyone who's followed the court for any length of time knew that the, the judge's argument was at some point not going to be clean. At some point, sooner rather than later, uh, or, or this was actually somewhat later rather than sooner, uh, this was not going to be clean because it never is. It never is. Presidents appoint human being jurists. They do not appoint case outcomes. And these human being jurists, even when they're quite closely aligned in their philosophies overall, as Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch both are, will reach different conclusions in the face of similar facts or similar legal texts. It happens. It's always happened. It's always going to happen. And if Josh Hawley or Adrian Vermeule thinks that they can get a better court by, I guess, asking people before, uh, asking people in, in the nomination process, will you please read the House editorial of First Things before you rule on any religious uh, liberty case? to provide you with guidance, they're going to be nominating somebody with a legal philosophy. And that legal philosophy will sometimes depart from what they want as an outcome. And I'm not quite sure why religious conservatives believe that their particular philosophy should be privileged over others. Um, religious conservatives are just as prone as any other group of Americans to make excessive demands of the law. So I'm not quite sure why their view should be privileged. Um, and then the other thing is, look, stay tuned, y'all. I, I have in my um, I have in my newsletter today a series of cases that are going to be decided in the next uh, you know few couple of weeks where we'll get the get the opinions. Where you watch if the outcome goes as I expect it will go, all of the weeping and anguish you saw on Twitter will exactly reverse exactly reverse. You might have a broad expansion of the ministerial exception, which will lead, all of a sudden to an interesting situation where religious institutions will have greater freedom from non-discrimination employment law than they've ever formally enjoyed before. And so there are, there are new legal developments that may well come that will cause some of this to flip. And then I think, I think when the June medical services abortion case comes out, you might see it flip again, because I don't think there's any indication from the Supreme court that it's willing to substantially rewrite abortion law, which will be a big disappointment. And so again, you're, but you're David, do you agree? Do you agree with Gorsuch's ruling? I, will, decision? I, I'm more persuaded by Alito, but it is a lot closer than I thought it would be because see what a lot of people are missing as you look at the Gorsuch ruling is nobody disputes, nobody disputes that this is not what the people who drafted the civil rights act intended. Nobody disputes that, but that is, According to textualists and original public meaning, that's not relevant what they intended to do with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. What's relevant 
is what the words mean. And what's interesting is I think people have missed in the critique of Justice Gorsuch is they say he's redefined sex. He hasn't at all. In fact, both Alito and Gorsuch apply the definition of sex as a biological fixed term, a fixed biological state of being. And in that way, they depart from transgender ideology. And what what Gorsuch is saying is you cannot, as a matter of fact, discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity without also discriminating on the basis of sex. And so that that's his assertion. And Alito says no. And Alito comes back at Gorsuch and says, wait a minute, if I have a policy that's written that says I will not hire a gay employee, I don't know the sex of the employee as I'm writing that policy. That would apply to men and women equally. Um, and so therefore, that's not discrimination on the basis of sex at all. It's discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, to which Gorsuch says, though, however, when applied to an actual human being, you would be treating a man different from a woman in, uh, in your actual employment decision. And that's where it comes down to. They're not disagreeing on whether or not the definition of sex is about a biological, fixed biological state of being. What they're disagreeing on is whether or not you can discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity without also discriminating on the basis of sex. That's the dispute. And that's and that's a lot finer, that's a lot finer point than the way it's being cast in uh, the public argument, like Gorsuch rewrote the law. No, he's he's making a conceptual argument that says, wait a minute, I cannot see a circumstance in which in which sex discrimination is not part of sexual orientation and, and gender identity discrimination. Alito is saying, oh, yes, I can. And here are the examples. Steve, do you think overall the Republican voters were more likely to vote on judges or to rank judges as a higher factor in their vote than Democrats by a significant you know, double digit margin in quite a few polls? Uh, will this lower the temperature on both, have no effect? Uh, will conservatives continue to outpace Democrats on judicial voters, let's call them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the caveat that David offers is is a good one. We'll see. We'll see what else we, we learn. Uh, it's entirely possible that when we look back on this entire, uh, the, the, the bulk of cases that the court is uh, deciding, we'll look back and things will look different uh, in a couple months than they look right now. Um, but having said that, I think Jonah's sort of tentative conclusion that this doesn't help the the Trump case on on judges is the right one. Um, you know, that was an argument. And and look, there's a, there's a big argument. Mitch McConnell will, will make it um, and so other Republican senators that the broader effects of uh, the Trump judiciary versus what would have been a Hillary Clinton judiciary are, you know, significant and outweigh, uh, you know, one decision that some social conservatives don't like. So I think they'll still still be able to make this argument and we'll see what the rest of the cases uh, bring. I, I do think, you know, this this moment and watching the reaction to this is is uh, is very interesting just in in terms of where the conservative movement is today um you know this is a fight that that a lot of us have been covering a lot of us have been engaged in david has been sort of leading but the extent to which there's you know 
there is an outcome-based um, conservatism versus a process-based conservatism it is really becoming clear as these arguments continue to, to unfold. Um, you know, the, the post-liberal crowd making arguments that it doesn't really matter, process doesn't really matter on a lot of this stuff. And I mean, that's, that's an oversimplification of their case, but on a lot of, uh, in, in many respects, that's, that's almost exactly what they're arguing. It's all about outcomes. We need to find people who will give us the outcomes we want. And that's the way that this works, period. It's what the left has done. It's what the right needs to do. And politics and, and uh, you know, are, are the politics of the judiciary have to be outcomes based. And that's how we're going to proceed. It's a clarifying moment um, for those of us who believe in process, because uh, I think process matters. And as, and as David said, process isn't always going to give you a, a good process is going to guarantee that certain things happen and they happen e evenly um, and uh, according to certain predetermined rules. But they're not always going to give you the outcomes that you want. And that's part of believing in the process. Uh, the abandonment of those processes at this point, I think, has to, to give pause or cause concern for many of the conservatives, at least, that I thought agreed with us on the basic importance of process. Yeah, but can I, I know I'm Ahab or that that reporter who was convinced that the Hulk was real on this <laughs> stuff, but um, Steve makes a good point about process. The reason why this is the hot, steaming mess that it is, is that the of the the fundamental breakdown on the process is that Congress isn't doing its freaking job. Yeah, that's so true. If, true. If Congress, if 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 I'm I'm totally open to the idea of including transgender people in the Civil Rights Act, and and you know maybe there'd be specific carve outs for religious stuff and all sorts of things that we could do that would be better for all sides. I don't know. I'm totally open to the idea though, of of extending those protections. I, the, it is insane that it is falling to the Supreme Court to be doing this. Congress- Time and again. This is time not and time the and again, time. yes. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this is the problem. When the, the in the assembly line uh, that creates laws in this country, when the workers in Congress and in state legislatures and all the rest, when they don't do their jobs, putting their pieces together, the assembly line sends all the parts down to the Supreme Court and they get to put it together any way they, they want. And then people feel how outrageous it is that these unelected robed priests, masters, whatever, are rewriting our life and 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 tampering with our society and all this stuff. And no one seems to point out well, if frickin' Congress had been, you know, said, oh, you know, this is an interesting issue. Maybe we need to, you know, revi revisit the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Otherwise, Congress is going to get the puck and they're going to do something different with it and that's going to cause problems for us. Congress has been abdicating its role for an increasing amount for a nearly a century now. And it is Congress where politics is supposed to happen. That is where different groups of Americans bring their grievances, their desires, their agendas to a central place where then the, everyone has big arguments about it. And it's because and because Congress has basically closed itself off to the natural functioning of politics in this country, politics has been spilling out into the courts, 
It's been spilling out into the editorial pages in the newsrooms. It's been spilling out into Hollywood. If Congress just simply needs to frickin' do its job and stop worrying about getting good hits on Morning Joe or Fox and Friends. And David, there's three cases this term that fit exactly what Jonah's describing. This is one of them. Uh, Congress had taken up uh, potential legislation around this, and it just didn't go anywhere. DACA is another example uh-huh. where Congress had considered legislation. It didn't go anywhere. And Little Sisters of the Poor, the question over contraceptive mandates, is a little bit more interesting because Congress basically uh, did something far m- more to Jonah's point where they quite clearly kicked the question to the courts when they said, uh, here's a law, now administrative state, figure out what the law actually is going to require. And now the, you know, HHS, a part of HHS did figure, you know, decide what the individual mandate would require around contraception, sorry, not the individual mandate, the contraception mandate. And, uh, and that's now being litigated because Congress didn't actually set the rules for what the contraception mandate would be. Uh, and, at the same time, politicians, Congress, senators don't seem to be punished for this. They're rewarded because their rhetoric gets to be on whatever side of the issue they want to be on without taking the vote. Is there any hope of this changing or does the court keep getting dragged in? Oh, there's no hope for now. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, let's just end, let's end all speculation. There is no hope for now. There is not a single, I think, important, truly material cultural or political factor that is pushing back against the negative polarization and the enhanced executive authority and that has put us into this place. Uh, There are voices pushing back, like Jonah's voice is pushing back. Our voices are pushing back, but there is a tidal force. And just to amplify what you said about Little Sisters of the Poor, do you remember that really famous statement that Nancy Pelosi said, something like, we have to pass this law to see what's in it? Yep. That was even worse than you thought because it wasn't taken literally. It, it, when you look at the legal, actual legal background, um, everyone sort of initially interpreted it. And I think she probably meant it this way as like, hey, what, we need to just go ahead and pass it and we'll argue about the details later. But the way the right. law. Right. I mean, people made fun of it as a, as a silly thing to say. Right. But in fact, what she said was factually accurate. Yes, it was factually accurate. The law had left so much for the executive branch to fill in that you didn't even know what Obamacare was fully until the law was passed by Congress. And then the executive agencies filled in all the blanks. And that's the source of the contraception mandate that has been a an absolute culture war flashpoint for almost a decade now or more than around a decade now. And it's and so that's, you know, when you go to this, what Jonah is saying, Congress has to do its job. Congress has to do its job. Y'all, this is putting a stress on our system that is intensifying the culture war at every turn. And then rather than step in as adults and govern what these members of Congress do is then intensify the culture war at every turn through the Fox hit and through the MSNBC hit. I mean, this is why this is why you see like Ted Cruz challenging Ron Perlman to wrestle Jim Jordan. Now, I'd be more impressed if Ted Cruz was actually challenging someone himself to wrestle. But no, he's bringing another person in to challenge. on. It's so weird, stupid, ridiculous, performative Twitter nonsense. And yet that's now part of the job description that many members of the world's greatest deliberative body see as essential to who they are in this in this system. And it is 
It is destroying the fabric of our government. It is it is harming our culture. And Sarah, there is no short-term prospect of it changing. And on that note, <laughs> Steve, did you want the last word? I mean, I, you know, I, I thought we might be able to get through the entire week without any dispatch mentions of the Ted Cruz, Ron Perlman, Jim Jordan, <laughs> Matt Gates thing. And what, how wrong you were. What, whatever it was. But I, but I will say, if, if we were going to raise it, the way that David just raised it is the perfect way to raise it. Yeah. I, I, I don't. I really don't have much to add. I, you're, they're both right. You know, I would. I would argue that this is also the reason that we've seen the accrual of so much power in the executive. Um, you know, Congress isn't sure. doing his job. It's Congress is a place to go to perform and to give speeches and to to get on Twitter and to get on Fox and Friends and, and to become president. And, and yeah, I mean, and and to and to, to become president, president or to try to become president. Yeah. yeah, it's it's um it's it's pretty dysfunctional at this point, and I don't think we take many major steps towards solving our broader problems until we take big steps toward fixing Congress. All right, guys, last topic. Uh, so I, uh, I had a baby over the weekend. It was super fun. He's neat. Um, uh, but what, you know, in the lead up to that, one of the things that I was like most going to miss was reading, like just quiet moments alone, reading on my deck, hearing the birds chirp, et cetera. So I went on kind of this binge. Uh, shout out to Jonah, by the way, because he had Matt Ridley on his podcast a couple times this year, but uh, recently. And Matt Ridley has a new book out that was really uh, different from some of his other books. And I really enjoyed it. It's on how innovation works and uh Good times on that. I read Carl Zimmer's uh, book on genetics and heredity. Uh, she has her mother's laugh is the name of that one. And uh, guys, I have the best baby in the whole world because you will not believe what I did yesterday. Mind you, for only a few minutes. But I started a new book. Uh, <laughs> I was really pleased. So what this made me think of was how much I love good writing and that Steve wakes up every morning at like 5 a.m. to edit the Morning Dispatch newsletter to make sure that we are putting out good writing, hopefully every day. <laughs> and so I wanted to start with Steve on what is his biggest writing pet peeve or what he uh, looks for maybe to define bad writing. Hmm. <laughs> or, or I will also open this up to a pet peeve that others have that actually you think is just fine. You know, split infinitive sort of being the famous one where, you know, some people think it's bad writing. Others are like, no, look, I get that it's wrong, but it's great. We're not speaking Latin anymore. I still prefer um, not to split You're infinitives whenever <laughs> possible. Um, and I try to I try to do that in, in our editing process too. There, there are so many of these little hangups. Here's the one of the worst things you can ever do is... Um, go back and read William Sapphire's books that uh, were the on language collections his of his on language column. Yes. Oh, I love those. It, it is. I mean, they're, they're fantastic. I'm, I'm being sarcastic. It's great to go back and read them, but then all of the little things that he picks at live in yeah. your head when you read yeah. and Lord knows I violate his rules all the time. And I am, uh, I am, I have many, many weaknesses as a writer. I would say, and, and so, so the short answer to your question is, 
I have so many of these things and they, they change on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. Um, I would say the thing that is bothering me most these days is the use of impact as a verb. Impact, such and such is impacting this, uh, impacting that just drives me Ooh. nuts. It's, I know it's a, it's a quirky one, but I, I hear it and it is the, proverbial nails on a chalkboard. I also hate cliches. Um, so <laughs> I, I try to write it out of everything that, that we do. That's the tell. If, if, we, if you see something published um, in our pages that includes impact as a verb, there's a very strong likelihood that I had nothing to do with it, that I didn't even get a chance to copy edit it. Andrew, Declan, I hear a challenge. Uh, <laughs> David, when it comes to legal writing, you've done, you know, plenty of briefs to the court, et cetera. I think some of the worst writing is in legal writing oh my. often. <laughs> so this is, so I thought the subject was going to be confined to grammar, at which point I was going to, at which point it, I, can, it is grammar. It's all of this. Well, I was going to tell Loose. a true story. This tells you how poorly, uh, now look, I had a Kentucky pub, rural Kentucky public school education that was very good in some ways and in other ways, not so great. And I'll give you an example. Uh, so I taught legal writing at Cornell Law School, and we're we're meeting as a faculty before. And this is one of the more embarrassing moments of my professional life. We're meeting as a faculty before um, the students came in, and our chair of our department talks about you know things. Here's sort of like six or seven like just uh, quick rules she teaches students, and one of them was don't use passive voice. At yeah. which point I blurted out. And bear in mind, I'm an adult lawyer at this point. What is passive voice? Perfect. Yes. Yes. So that was really establishing my credibility as an academic at that point. No, I, I will tell you, um, I did, I did two things to become a better legal writer. Uh, one is I made it a practice of reading every single legal document that I wrote out loud if it didn't sound like a normal human being talking, it was poor writing. And so then the other thing that I would do is I would always ask a non-lawyer to read my brief or a non-lawyer to read read my argument. Yes. So, wow. uh, You know, one of the legal secretaries or, um, you know, a paralegal, somebody who was reasonably kind of new lingo, but I would always ask someone in the firm who was not a lawyer to read my brief. And if they didn't understand my argument, I would rework it. And so my my position and my position always was that these briefs are often read in a hurry uh, by judges. They're often read in a hurry by clerks. You have a limited amount of time to grab their attention and you have a limited number of things that you will put in their head. And so I always wanted uh, anyone who read one of my briefs or legal arguments to understand my point straight away and to at least have one to two key points that they take away from it. And so that's, and, and to do so with, uh, uh, sometimes spotty grammar, I later learned. Uh, but yeah, I, I also think if you read something that you write out loud, bad grammar doesn't read well. And so you'll just sort of naturally fix it. Even if you're not an expert in grammar as I am definitely not. Jonah, I saved you for last because it doesn't matter the topic. If I'm asking for a pet peeve or complaint about something, I just like, you're going to be my favorite. So I just like, 
Open up to us about what annoys you, Jonah. Well, I mean... He just pulled off his glasses, folks, as if he's about to launch into <laughs> his, like, you know, acceptance speech. Well, no, but, like, it, it, given the mood I am in, it, it's, it would be easier if you asked what doesn't annoy me. Right. It would be a shorter <laughs> conversation, but... That's always your mood. <laughs> you know, one place to start is about a moderator who says we're going to talk about grammar, and then it turns out she couldn't care oh. a word about grammar. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, uh, grammar and usage. Do you think this is not about grammar? I mean, I think it's right? probably I mean, about grammar. There's all sorts of stuff going on here. You, the way she framed the question was about, uh, you know, bad writing and, and things that, you know, annoy Imp- impact as a verb. Uh, it's not, it's not what I think about as a major grammar thing. Um, but, uh, fewer versus less is one of the hills that I'm dying on these days. Uh, it drives me crazy when people misuse um, fewer and less. And, uh, and I, I, you know, it, I, it bothers me greatly. It vexes me. Uh, um, another is, uh, would you say it impacts your day? It does impact <laughs> my day. And oddly, I don't really care about split infinitives. Um, uh, I, you know, sometimes it's necessary to boldly go where no one's gone before, <laughs> but, um, I do, uh, um, the, the thing that is partly just because it's sort of Steve's point about Sapphire, my friend Nick Schultz put this in my head about 15 years ago. And I now every single time I hear it, it drives me crazy. And everyone is guilty. Everyone does it. When any sentence of the, the construction is the reason is because <laughs> that you because is a redundancy because the reason is the reason. <laughs> so it's the reason is that the reason is because it's like saying the reason is the reason. And you don't need that there either. It, it, it fine, but not. <laughs> the, uh, in terms of writing, my own sort of rule is word repetition is very, very bad. Um, and, if you've used an adjective or, you know, if you're describing something with one word in, a, in one sentence or one paragraph, come up with a different word that means the same thing in the next. Totally. And it is one of these things that um, it's funny. My understanding is that in Spanish and a lot of other languages, you can say in paragraph after paragraph, as we were walking down the road and then the road got longer and as, as the road extended in front of us and as we look back on the road and no one minds hearing the same word over and over again, but in English, there is something, it's a sign of a writer who has more confidence and can go further is if you swap out road, path, you know, journey, whatever it is. Um, and I will often go back and read columns that I wrote and I'll completely not care about some grammar thing that I missed or whatever, but if I see the same word being repeated, it it drives me crazy. You have to avoid saying things over and over again, repeating yourself, general repetition, redundancy. It's awful. You should avoid <laughs> cliches like that, like the plague. <laughs> Jonah, I thought I thought you were going to lead based on your Twitter feed with raises the question versus begs the question. Yeah. That is Ooh. so hard to explain to people, though. I mean, it is just... Yeah, it's one of mine too, though. It's definitely. It's yeah, definitely. no, it, it drives me crazy. Um, there's also, 
then there's also stuff that like John McWhorter says we should just write off, like decimate or literally versus literally figuratively. figuratively. No, you never give in on literally and figuratively. Never. You know, David and I, David and I now have a judicial opinion that we can cite where literally, legally now means figuratively. Yep. We had a I mean, so about a twenty news. minute a twenty minute discussion of, of it on advisory opinions. Literally so can bad. mean figuratively. Yep. So no. we need to new nuke humanity. Maybe the Chinese and the Indians will Just get to work over. on that. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think we can I don't think we can even use I mean you shouldn't use avoid something like the plague because it's a cliche, but I don't think we can use it anymore anyway, because look around. We didn't avoid it. We're not really avoiding things like the plague. <laughs> so that's sort of like my my dad, who was an editor for 40 years, um, he always used to say, this is like shuffling the deck chairs on the Lusitania. Because he was like, why does the Titanic get all of the credit for frivolous deck chair shuffling? Other ships have gone down in the last hundred years. Um, and he would always swap out different famous. This is like shuffling the deck chairs on the Andrea Doria. Um, because, you know, we, some of these cliches you can mix around. So maybe we should say avoid it like uh, the way the South Koreans avoided COVID-19. I know it's not as euphonious, <laughs> but it kind of gets there. Better. Well, uh, okay. My big ones, pronoun antecedent, not matching. Oh, my God. It drives me crazy. With you. Very big deal. And shout out to Mrs. Healy, my eighth grade grammar teacher, who really made me fall in love with grammar. If you live uh, in the Spring Branch School District, you may still find Mrs. Healy out and about from time to time. Um, Whether or not, that is incorrect. It should be whether something happens or not. The or not comes at the end of the thing. It is not whether or not something happens. And it is. Uh, really, really bothers me because very smart people do that. Why do you and need the or not at all? Shouldn't it uh, just correct. be whether? I will accept that, of course, but I will not accept whether or not as a phrase. It's good. <laughs> I like it. How about getting rid of uh, whether and saying not? Well, that, I guess that would confuse things. <laughs> Uh, thank you all for listening to our airing of grievances. <laughs> uh, no, but seriously, thank you all to the dispatch members and all of your support to me personally. I've so enjoyed all of your thoughts and feelings on the baby arrival. I posted some pictures on Twitter, Instagram, etc. I just can't thank you guys all enough. And of course, my wonderful coworkers here who have made this uh, a very easy process and have uh, really been there helping me along the way with advice and thoughts and feelings behind the scenes that stuff you guys don't even see that has made them amazing, including them begging me not to be here today. (laughs) So (laughs) thank you guys. Um, and, uh, for those members of the dispatch for our next dispatch live, we've gotten a few requests. And so, yes, I do think that the brisket will have a short cameo appearance So highly encourage you to become a member of the dispatch so you can join our dispatch live next time. And, you know, you can meet the brisket. He's he's speaking in full sentences. He already knows all of these grammar rules. (laughs) And uh, I'm sure he'll have his own annoyances to share, like when the bottle is not there 10 seconds after he wakes up. It's really he would like it within three seconds. Uh, Thank you, guys. And we'll see you next week. 